to the premiere episode of WDMA Open and Close. I'm your host, Michael Bryan, CEO of the Window and Door Manufacturers Association. Our goal with this podcast is to provide you with a mixture of content and analysis of the issues impacting the window, door, and skylight industry. We also plan to bring you engaging interviews with industry leaders, experts, and analysts that will provide unique perspectives on the industry today. There's a constant stream of external factors driving the industry today, whether it be changing business conditions, a disruptive political environment, or rapidly changing demographics and consumer preferences. On this podcast, we'll examine the big issues driving the industry, hopefully in an informative and engaging manner that will keep you coming back. If you have suggestions for topics or future episodes, please email them to me at mobrien.com. That's M-O-B-R-I-E-N at WDMA.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to WDMA Open and Close through iTunes or Stitcher, available in the Google Play Store. You can also listen to us online through the WDMA website at WDMA.com. Coming up on this episode is a discussion about trade, tariffs, and what to expect from Congress before the midterm elections. Then we'll have a conversation with Jeff Shalakis president of Hoppy North America, to get his take on trends and developments in the industry. Stay with us. As I'm sure most listeners are aware, the U.S. has a brewing trade war going on with Canada, Mexico, China, the European Union, and frankly, many other countries across the globe. But before all these recent developments on tariffs, WDMA was already engaged in the ongoing negotiations and stalemate over the softwood lumber agreement with Canada for the last several years. Now, with the advent of the Trump administration in 2017, all of NAFTA has been subject to renegotiation. And this year, the president has now used his national security authority to levy tariffs on steel and aluminum from a number of countries and thousands of Chinese products many of which are used by WDMA members. This is now prompting retaliatory actions by other countries. Joining me to discuss these trade developments and other emerging policy and political issues is Kevin McKenney, WDMA's Director of Government Affairs. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, The Trump administration has been aggressive when it comes to tariffs uh, on a number of fronts. First were the steel and aluminum tariffs and then the specific tariffs targeting Chinese exports to the U.S. So let's talk about China first. What's been the administration's approach to tariffs on Chinese exports because it seems pretty aggressive? So I think it makes sense to go back and look at what Congress did in the 1960s regarding trade and tariff authority. Typically Congress has the authority over the ability to impose tariffs on other countries, uh, but with one exception. In the early 1960s, they passed a law called the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. And this was intended to give the executive branch some authority over imposing tariffs specifically for national security concerns. So once they passed that, the the executive branch had a very narrow window of authority to impose tariffs. However, it was very, very rarely used Uh, before President Trump. Uh, But since then, uh, President Trump has used that authority under the Trade Expansion Act to impose those tariffs. So China has been the main focus of the administration on these various trade measures. 
so far we've seen actually three rounds of tariffs that the administration has been proposing, some of which has been in response to Chinese retaliation to our original tariffs, but we've seen three. The first two were 25% uh, tariff proposals on a list of products, and the latest is a 10% uh, proposal that's not in effect yet, but uh, probably will be uh, in the coming month or so, um, and we'll be weighing in on that uh, when appropriate. So the first round, so to speak, um, had several products on it. Well, let's. It wasn't so much products, but uh, materials that went into the construction of a window or door, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it certainly was a lot more uh, component related on that list, and, and it was metal focused. Correct. I mean, metal and steel yep. and aluminum focused at that point, wasn't it? That's right. It was a lot of metal products, a lot of products that were even small things like uh, hex nuts, for example. So uh, very small things used in in uh, com their components in, in finished products. So then the second list seems, which is the one that's open for comment right now, um, seems less impactful for us, this industry, correct? Yeah, that's correct. In our estimation, we haven't seen really many direct impacts or we haven't been given that feedback. Uh, however, we, we are cognizant of the fact that it is likely to have an indirect impact as, as those things continue to be proposed and implemented. So uh, while we're not seeing a direct impact on that second list, we, we are cognizant of, of the indirect impacts that it can have. Then there's the third list, which is now the 10% tariff, correct, versus the 25%, just to keep the scoreboard accurate. So we think this one has, of really of the three rounds so far, this one looks to be probably the most impactful on this industry, right? Yeah, absolutely. This one is the most extensive in terms of number, the number of products and materials on the list. So the first list that we saw back to the 25% was over a thousand. This one is, is well over that initial proposal. So while it's a lower tariff amount at 10%, that's what the proposal is, a 10% tariff, the list is significantly more expansive. I mean, the third list is crazy long, everything from sleeping bags to seafood to <laughs> right. a lot of um, wood-related wood products that go into making windows and doors, right? And that's going to be mainly the focus of, of our comments coming up on the third round, right? Absolutely, yeah. We, we've already been receiving some very productive feedback uh, from our members on that it's definitely proving to be the most impactful based on the initial feedback we've been receiving so far so our comments are certainly going to be tailored uh, mainly to the wood products that are on the list but also some of those other uh, component parts that are on there some other uh, metal related things that are certainly going to be uh, impactful so that's going to be the focus of our comments we're probably going to be requesting over 20 of them for exclusion when we submit comments to the u.s trade representative uh, in August. And, and there's a public hearing related to this as well? Yes, there will be a public hearing after the comments are due. So that will be uh, the week after August 17th, which is when written comments are due. So let's back up to the aluminum and steel tariffs, which pretty much got this whole thing rolling. Uh, what's been happening since those were imposed? And I think we probably need to explain the difference 
with commenting on the Chinese products, which we've been able to do as an association on behalf of the industry versus the broad um, tariffs on steel and aluminum, which uh, pretty much just allowed individual companies to try and seek exemptions, right? Right, yeah, so on the broad tariffs, as you mentioned, there was the ability uh, to request exclusions from specific products that are being imported. And so there was a lot of scientific data that they were requesting for that uh, when they opened that up uh, for, for requesting exclusions. I'd say the reactions have been pretty mixed, uh, but mostly I would say negative, especially in the international community. Uh, they've all expressed serious concern over the tariffs and uh, the potential for a trade war and some of the other negative ramifications that could go along with that, including looking at you know, new trading partners. So the international community's reaction has been mixed, and I think we're going to see an increased um, reaction well, here at home. Mixed, mixed is a very fake. <laughs> I think you're downplaying it a little bit. I mean, for, yeah, I think perhaps. negative is probably a better better word. Yes, it, it probably is. There there were some people in the Trump camp who were definitely supportive at first, but what I think is going to happen is they're going to start to come become a little bit more concerned over this as they're seeing price increases, which a lot of the reports coming out, uh, they're really demonstrating that prices are going to be going up on a variety of, of consumer products. And so I think more and more people are going to share that that negative reaction which is somewhat shared by congress so president trump's been a lot more aggressive um, clearly than a lot of previous presidents in recent times uh, a number of wdma members are upset with the trade policy congress sort of in in my view seems to be floundering around on this in terms of not wanting to speak ill of it but yet are not in favor of the tariffs. So um, can and will Congress weigh in on this? Uh, so yes, they can, and they definitely have already. Uh, in terms of their reaction, it's been mostly negative. The interesting thing is that Republicans have historically been, uh, quote, free traders. They've really resisted over the years any kind of restrictive trade measures. Now that President Trump is in office and he's a Republican president, they're a little bit more hesitant to be critical and to really stand up to the more burdensome trade actions that he's implemented. Uh, but that being said, there are a few standouts in Congress who have really taken a leadership role in this issue. Uh, one comes to mind is Senator Bob Corker, uh, who has introduced legislation recently to try to rein in some of the authority that Congress gave to the executive branch going back to that law from the 60s, uh, Bob Corker's bill would allow Congress to have a bit more of a say in uh, national security related tariffs. And so uh, Bob Corker is leading that and there's a bunch of others uh, in the Senate uh, who have signed on to that bill. And when they were passing the National Defense Authorization Act, which is what funds the Department of Defense, uh, Senator Corker actually attempted to attach his bill on the tariffs as an amendment, uh, but it was rejected. Uh, by the Senate. A lot of other Republicans objected, and that was largely because they didn't want to really confront President Trump with uh, putting those restrictions on his authority. So while reactions have been mostly negative, uh, I think some in the Republican caucus have been hesitant to really be critical of, of President Trump. Uh, so it's going to remain to be seen whether or not Senator Corker's bill uh, is going to get any traction, but he's looking at different ways right now that uh, that might be able to pass. 
So we've also been reporting on the renegotiation of NAFTA. What's the current status? How will the steel and aluminum tariffs impact the progress with Canada and Mexico? Obviously, Canada um, has taken retaliatory actions specifically against aluminum window and doors uh, in recent weeks as part of um, a reaction to uh, the U.S. tariffs on aluminum. So how does this or does this factor into um, the renegoti renegotiation of NAFTA? Yeah, it's definitely playing a role. If you go back to the original steel and aluminum tariffs, when they were originally implemented, uh, the Trump administration provided exemptions, country exemptions, uh, for several of our allies that did include Canada and Mexico. Now, in early June, uh, the Trump administration rescinded uh, those exclusions. So as of June 1st, Canada and Mexico have been subject to those steel and aluminum tariffs. The original goal of ex giving them that exclusion, though, was to give them a give the Trump administration a little bit more leverage when it comes to renegotiating NAFTA. There are a few very contentious provisions within NAFTA that the United States and Canada just simply do not agree on. And so the goal what, by excluding them from those original steel and aluminum tariffs was to uh, provide a gesture of good faith so that Canada might ease their uh, demands a little bit and come around to what the United States would like that did not work out for them, so they actually rescinded those exclusions. Uh, so actually, a lot of work on renegotiation has been completed, but the really standout issues that remain contentious are, are, not, are not resolved. Now, the other thing that's interesting are the politics around this. So Mexico, for example, is one of the partners of NAFTA, and they just had a presidential election. And so a lot of the work that was being done by the three countries toward a renegotiation effort really stalled uh, in the lead up to that election. It was kind of the uncertainty of things that played a role in that. Uh, but what's interesting is that talks have recently resumed on that. Um, the incoming presidential administration in Mexico has appointed a lead negotiator for NAFTA renegotiation. And that lead negotiator has a relationship with the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, who is the lead negotiator for the United States. And well, I thought the new Mexican government was more anti-American. Is that not? Well, it's, it's I'm not it, there's totally some ways to speed on Mexican <laughs> politics, but there's there's different ways to look at it. But with regard to the guy that's been appointed by the new Mexican president, uh, he has a relationship with Robert Lighthizer. Now we're not sure exactly how that relationship might play into renegotiation, but they've both spoken very highly of each other, and so maybe that will go a long way towards bridging some of the gaps that keep the countries apart. I think it's it's probable that there will be an agreement that's reached, although the, what the final product of that looks like is going to be, uh, it, it remains to be seen. One of the things that the Trump administration has been talking about recently is pursuing bilateral agreements, uh, which would be separate agreements with each country. I don't think that that's going to be the direction they ultimately go, but that's been uh, spoken about recently as a potential course of action if they cannot reach an agreement on on NAFTA, but I, I think they will reach an agreement. Uh, it's just a matter of it's just a matter of time, and who's gonna who's gonna give a little uh, or who's gonna who, blink first? Right, who's gonna blink first on this uh, on this effort? So, I guess so drilling down a little bit further into the softwood lumber dispute, um, obviously uh, that has a big impact on the industry. It's been dragging on for a number of years. There's been a lot of back and forth. 
um, the dynamics of the, this new trade war are having an impact. So where do we stand now? I'm seeing, you know, national campaigns going on because of the increased spiking in lumber prices. So what what's the current situation? Well, first, I think it's it's definitely true that we're starting to see the impact of that disagreement, the softwood lumber dispute between Canada and Mexico. I was just looking at some numbers earlier, and the price of lumber, as you were just mentioning, is actually up 30% from last year. And the HUD data that they put out with the Department of Commerce on housing starts for uh, June, those numbers just came out, and housing starts are down uh, by about 12%. And a lot of that is related to the price of lumber. So we're definitely seeing some serious impact with uh, the lack of a new softwood lumber agreement, which expired uh, back during the Bush administration. Um, interestingly, though, it, it's important to look at the way that the Trump administration views domestic interests. Um, one of the challenges toward finding a new, uh, the grounds for a new agreement is that uh, President Trump is definitely very concerned with protecting domestic companies and domestic producers. And we're we're seeing that already as justification for the tariff issue. The same is very true for the softwood lumber dispute. And so the Trump administration views uh, domestic lumber producers here in the United States as worthy of being protected from what they describe as Canadian dumping into the United States. And so they're really reluctant to form an agreement that's not favorable to domestic producers uh, here in the United States. So that's one of the big burdens toward an agreement. But I think that they're somewhat cognizant of the fact that the ongoing dispute is not going to be beneficial for either side. And so I'm sure that they're going to continue to be motivated to look at uh, what the options are for a new agreement. And WDMA has been has, has met with both uh, U.S. authorities on this and the Canadian government on this. And uh, we're going to continue to do so as appropriate uh, in, in trying to get uh, a new agreement together. So there's not a lot of time left for this Congress to accomplish much with the elections coming up. I mean, is there anything we can realistically expect uh, them to accomplish? They haven't done much, um, pretty much since the beginning of last year. Um, do you, what do you see there and what about on a regulatory front? Well, it's true that <laughs> this year is going to be very challenging, I think, for a lot of action to really be accomplished. Um, first, there was there was talk about an infrastructure bill being done, but that's kind of gone down in flames that um, they really couldn't get any real traction on that. I think a lot of the Republicans weren't too enthusiastic about doing an infrastructure bill uh, in an election year. Um, the main focus of Congress right now is really doing appropriations, which is an interesting thing for them to be doing because they haven't really passed appropriations bills uh, in a number of years, but they are continuing to do all the committee work on that and uh, are going to probably continue to do so until government funding runs out uh, in a few months, uh, at which time they'll probably pass a continuing resolution. But besides... Just, just so our listeners understand, Congress is supposed to pass 12 appropriations bills funding that's right. various agencies. It's the normal way the government is supposed to be funded, that each of these goes through committee process, they vote on these, and in recent years, they hardly ever have gotten through this process, which results in what are called these continuing resolutions, which essentially are, are one large funding bill to keep the government operating. 
That's right, absolutely. And one of the reasons for that, the reason that they're not passing appropriations bills, as you just described, is mainly because of the Senate and the makeup of the Senate. The House has really no problem passing appropriations bills, and they've actually been passing uh, appropriations bills throughout these years. The problem has been in the Senate, and the House passed bills in the Senate, or even the bills that the Republicans put together in committee, in the appropriations committees in the Senate, they're really not able to get uh, passed uh, cloture vote, which is basically a filibuster. So they can't, what, what that means is that they just simply don't have the votes to pass a normal appropriations bill. And so they're forced to pass that continuing resolution, which is just another way of saying, let's, let's just keep government funding the same and keep the lights on. Uh, so I think that that's going to be the main focus as they continue. They're not really going to be doing any real landmark legislation. You know, we've been working on an energy bill for a number of years. I really don't think that that's going to be passing this year. Uh, it died uh, for the last in the last Congress uh, at a conference committee, which is the last step before presidential signature. So that was a positive development, but in an election year, it's just going to be too challenging. I think lastly, the most um, significant thing that they're going to be doing is the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee is getting ready to conduct his hearings and the Republicans, excuse me, are gonna really want to vote on his confirmation before uh, the midterm elections and get him seated because he's widely supported by uh, the Republicans. So they'll definitely be doing that, um, but otherwise in Congress is gonna be pretty quiet. So there's a big midterm election coming up. Lots been written about it. Uh, lots of prognosticating about what's going to happen af after this. You, would you care to go out on a limb with your own predictions? <laughs> well, I'll preface any comments with saying that uh, we, we all can look at polling, but we saw in the last presidential election that polling doesn't necessarily mean much. But uh, with that being said, I think there is a lot that we can we can look at. First of all, I think that the Democrats um, have a definite advantage going into the elections, particularly in the House of Representatives. Uh, the Republicans are on the defensive for a lot of seats uh, and the Democrats just have a lot of enthusiasm on their side. This will largely, I think, be a referendum on uh, President Trump and the approval ratings of Democrats, uh, the approval ratings that Democrats have of President Trump are very, very low. And I think that that enthusiasm I was just talking about is gonna drive a lot of Democrats to the polls in November and it's very, very, very possible that the Democrats can flip the House back to uh, Democratic control. So, at, was it 24 seats? They 24 seats they would need to, yeah, to retake. Take control. Yep. And there's over 30 seats that are currently projected as toss-ups uh, in most polls. And so, well, I think from what, I mean, my opinion is, I mean, you see all the polls, and you know, it's a five-point spread, it's a ten-point spread in terms of in favor of the Democrats versus Republicans, but ultimately, and I think it's the enthusiasm gap or lack thereof that, you know, will probably drive the outcome of the election. I mean, who's more motivated to vote? So I think you have to take all the polls, you know, with a grain of salt going right up until the end. Absolutely. Yeah, that's very true. And it's, it's very possible that the House could swing either way. I think the Democrats have the momentum on their side. Um, but Republicans typically have high turnout in midterm election years, so uh, I'm sure that's to be e expected. Well, it'll and, be very difficult for the Democrats to take the Senate just because the number of seats they're defending. I think the Republicans are only defending, what is it, nine? 
nine seats. seats, and most of those are safe seats. So yes, just a a couple or I guess now maybe three Republican Senate seats that are sort of in play now. They only need two right um, to take control of the Senate, but then they have to keep all the ones they're defending too. So right, absolutely. Yeah, the Senate will probably have to be a massive way. Yeah, exactly. For Democrats to win the Senate. Yeah, that, that was definitely a little more challenging. And I think we're seeing that their focus is on the House. Um, and so I think that that's going to be their their main focus from both a fundraising and campaigning perspective going into those elections. And the Senate will probably stay Republican if I had to guess. OK, well, thanks for joining us, Kevin. Thanks for having me. I'm sure we'll be talking again. We're going to take a quick break. Stay tuned for my conversation with Jeff Shalakis. place to be every fall is the WDMA Executive Management Conference. It's the only industry conference where senior management teams from the window, door, and skylight industries leading companies gather to understand and address the challenges facing the industry. Taking place this year on October 10th and 11th in Cambridge, Massachusetts, this conference will cover key topics like disruptive technology and skilled labor shortages and is the only industry event to feature a CEO roundtable. Plus, you'll get a first look at the 2019 market outlook. For program and registration information, visit WDMA.com. WDMA supplier members have been critical to the success of the association throughout WDMA's 90-year history. Like the manufacturer members of the association, our supplier partners dedicate countless hours of their time helping to advance the mission and priorities of WDMA. They serve on committees, task forces, developing standards, and conducting numerous educational programs throughout the year. That's why I'm so pleased to be able to have one of those highly dedicated and committed supplier members with me on the very first episode of Open and Close. As president of Hoppy North America, Jeff Shalakis has been involved with WDMA for nearly 20 years and currently serves on the board of directors. And I've personally had the pleasure of working with him for nearly 10 years. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. We're very excited to have you on our very first episode. So, so uh, I guess I'm sort of the guinea pig, huh? Uh, yes, you are. So I guess you better make <laughs> it good so people come back. Sure try. So tell us a little bit about Hoppy to get, get things started. Okay. Um, Hoppe is a company which was started in Europe. Uh, it was founded in 1952 by a gentleman by the name of Friedrich Hoppe, who uh, passed away uh, just in uh, 2008. The company itself is uh, is privately held. It's family owned and run by the owners. Uh, it is a very flat organization. I literally report to one of the owners. Um, it's interesting because my background has a little bit more of the uh, publicly held company in it, if you will. And as a result, uh, working with a privately held company, I had to make a bit of a shift because very oftentimes the thinking in a public company is, is a little shorter term. And uh, the privately held company that I'm with, Pompe actually thinks more in terms of generations instead of even years. Uh, they believe in very much in a sense of social responsibility and, and a responsibility to their employees and to the environment that the employees uh, live in. Uh, 
end, the the organization is kind of has a leadership which is very value-based and, and purpose-oriented. So there are specific values which uh, all of us within the organization are expected to uh, to stand up to uh, certain levels of integrity, for example. And, and uh, as a result, you'll, within the organization, there's very much a, a sense of trust and, and mutual respect amongst employees, whether they are, are top-end managers or uh, just uh, on the line working in one of the facilities. There's an understanding that, that you know, we want our employees to really engage their gray matter and that people will do so as long as they uh, and, and, and accept any challenges that they're given uh, provided they understand, you know, why they're being asked to do this. So there's a lot of education and a lot of communication uh, that goes back and forth. Um, hence, we found that this flatter organization uh, structure actually really makes that work. Um, we try to emphasize on, on growth from wherein, uh, within wherever practical, um, as far as employee growth and um, moving up through the ranks. And we understand that there's got to be a a, uh, a uh, so a term that we use is a total beneficial advantage, and we feel that that has to exist in several places. It has to exist in, in the supply chain. There has to be a reason that somebody wants to supply you product other than just a, a bit of margin, uh, because you can provide product to somebody but really not want to deal with them, and that's not a great way to spend your day. Uh, employees have to feel that they have something more than just a paycheck or, or a, a source of, of income because there are a lot of places that they can get that. Uh, and likewise, when we provide product and services to people within the industry, uh, they in turn have to feel that, uh, that there's something more than just a product. Otherwise, you're, you're not really a partner. You're more of just a, a commodity provider and we really don't view ourselves that way. The company itself is, is very innovative and vertically oriented. Uh, we try to, to supply ourselves as much as we possibly can uh, because in doing so we can control the, the quality levels throughout and that's extremely important to us because uh, uh, while the, the Hoppe brand is a very highly respected brand, I'm always reminded by the owners that it's not only the brand that's on the product; it is also a, uh, it's also a family name, and, and they take great pride in their name. Uh, we're well known and, and highly respected um, because the Hoppe brand. Uh, if you were to ask people what a brand means, if you ask ten different people, I'm sure you'd probably get ten different answers. Um, we believe that a brand name product basically keeps its promise of quality to the customer to a very specific level. We've got so you're, you're, in the hard, uh, in, you're in the hardware space. That's correct. correct. Yeah. That, that so. is absolutely correct. We specifically, uh, the speciality in Europe is the, is the manufacturing of handles uh, because the distribution in Europe is very different. There is a, uh, a lock manufacturer, a lock case manufacturer typically. There is a handle manufacturer. There is a cylinder manufacturer. 
different manufacturers make different products. Here in North America, we actually manufacture and put together a package uh, typically of multi-point hardware for doors or windows uh, along with the appropriate product such as the cylinder, uh, the handle sets themselves, uh, the hinges. So we kind of pull all that together because that's typically how that product is presented uh, here in North America as opposed to Europe. Well, wow, that's a great background on the company. So how did you come to work for them? Well, I actually came to the company um, back in 1996. Uh, prior to that, uh, I had been with a division of Ingersoll Rand called Schlake Lock Company. Right. Um, my last eight, eight years was as a uh, an international uh, director. And as a result, I spent probably 50, 60% of my time off of the North American continent. Um, I had known the Hoppe Group uh, because we provided product uh, parallel to them, not really the same products, but similar. Uh, and so I had a chance to kind of see the company from without uh, and interact with certain people within the organization directly. And I was just very impressed at, at the uh, structure and the, uh, the overall view that the company took in terms of their personnel and how important they felt the personnel were to their competitive advantage in the marketplace. So while I was with uh, Schlage Law Company, I had become an, an architectural hardware consultant and um, was very much involved in a number of projects where our product was used in conjunction with products from the Hoppe Group. And I was impressed with both the products and the personnel that were involved. So. Uh, I met one of the owners while acting as the uh, the international director, and uh, very late in life, uh, my wife and I had our first child. So uh, after 20 years of uh, wedded bliss, we uh, made a slight right turn from our uh, early retirement <laughs> plans because of the birth of our son, Alexander. And um, I wanted to uh, work with a company where I would not have to travel quite as much. I could spend a little more time closer to home. And I wanted to be closer to where uh, my parents and uh, my wife's parents were located. But you travel all the time. <laughs> I when you're traveling travel. more than you travel now? <laughs> oh, I used to travel much, much, much more before. Now I can actually uh, typically uh, spend time uh, traveling and then get back at least to my own bed, typically uh, during the week or on weekends. So... Um, yeah, there's there's quite a bit of traveling. If you ask my wife, it's still probably too much, but uh, but it's significantly less than it was. So you've been in the industry for quite some time now. So what do you see as the big changes that have transpired um, in your eyes in this industry over the last decade or so? Wow. Um, the I think there are two things that really have struck me, and that is uh, the pace of changes has increased dramatically, and I don't know if that's just because I'm getting older or if it's actually happening, uh, but I have noticed a number of, of changes. Um, years ago, for example, uh, in the in the window and door end of the business, uh, there were not as many multi-point locking systems, for example. The emphasis on energy efficiency uh, was not there, so the improvements, the dramatic improvements in, in just in general technology 
within this segment in terms of uh, manufacturing processes and uh, key elements uh, in terms of things like like glass, for example, or, or the locking systems uh, that are being produced or the materials that are being used uh, in the manufacturing of window and door frames or even lock sets, for example. Uh, very dramatically in terms of the, the degree of improvements from, I would say, from, from decade to decade, but almost from year to year. Um, lean processes that have that have come in throughout uh, all of the manufacturing from components to to final end units um, absolutely dramatic and of course one of the other things um, in terms of the the uh, mergers and acquisitions that have occurred throughout both the uh, supply side as well as the uh, as well as the manufacturing side those have uh, those have kind of rocked the industry, I think, a little bit, because uh, in some cases, um, when you see the supply side becoming much more diminished in terms of where you can actually access or source your goods, now you have uh, typically are are oftentimes limited in terms of what you can buy and and uh, what you can use, and uh, from a distribution side. Um, Sometimes uh, fewer distributors is better, but sometimes it's not better for getting your products into the marketplace across a national scale, let's put it that way. Well, it certainly seems the pace of M&A activity is not slowing down, and from everything that I see and hear, that that's certainly going to be continuing for a while. Well, I think that's that's absolutely true. I don't think that's I don't think we're we're anywhere near the end of it at this point in time. Um, when you think about the uh, window and door manufacturers uh, in North America, typically most people think of just the largest, but uh, we're a very splintered um, group in terms of those that are building the end items, which would go into the construction of of a house or or a commercial building. So there are a lot of smaller manufacturers that are out there, and many of them, I would say probably the majority of them being privately held, uh, in some cases, they either, there either is not an alternative for an owner to pass uh, their business on to, to progeny, or uh, there may not be an interest in terms of uh, the employees wanting to purchase the company from the owner. So I think we're going to see more and more of this, particularly as some of these owners start to get a little bit older. And now they are looking for a little closer in terms of their succession planning and, and what they can do with their business. Yeah, I think in just the 10 years that I've been working in this industry, I think 10 years ago, there was just a couple publicly traded companies. And that's certainly dramatically different now. Oh, no question. No question. The other thing that, that, I mean, if you look at it, Mike, we see you can see an awful lot of people uh, in terms of venture capitalists that are now starting to look at yeah. uh, segments of this industry, and uh, they're, they're drooling because there are, there are opportunities for them, uh, which may be good or may be bad. Uh, in some cases, some venture capitalists just want to uh, buy products, if you will, in terms of companies, uh, 
buy a company or group of companies, kind of uh, push them together, dress them to make them look as nice as possible, and then get out with as much cash as they can. That's not necessarily good for the industry. That having been said, there are conscientious uh, venture capitalists who literally want do want to take a business, improve that business, and then reap the rewards from having improved that business. And um, I think we're going to see more and more of them involved in this portion of the industry. So looking forward, um, what are the sort of the trends, innovations in the industry that have that you see coming down the pike that have you excited? Well, a couple of them. I think that uh, I think that this whole concept of you know that was that's been presented for some time now, being able to bring the outdoors in. Um, I think that's going to continue dramatically. I mean, you think about it, doors and windows uh, have just gotten larger and larger and larger. Um, people are looking for uh, an unobstructed view of what they have spent money on in terms of landscaping or, or just their location itself. Um, and there is much more involvement, and I think there will continue to be more involvement, on the part of owners uh, actively looking at and specifying or indicating what they want in the way of of taller doors, taller ceilings. I mean, we've seen some very dramatic things on the more expensive properties where our product has been used, which includes incredibly tall doors, incredibly tall and wide doors. And typically, there's a bit of a trickle down from those more expensive uh, properties into uh, a more mainstream group of properties, which are more affordable. And I think that's what we're going to be seeing. Another thing that I that I clearly uh, the improvement in in the glass technologies, in locking technologies, in moving technologies. I think we're going to continue to see that coupled with. Uh, additional technologies like uh, what I would call mechatronics, a uh, combination of electronics with mechanical product. Uh, that clearly, you know, the, the idea of, of the, the old Jetsons where you walk up to a door and it opens for you automatically, I don't think that, I think you could have that tomorrow if you wanted it, just through facial recognition uh, and the electronic opening and closing of doors, which already exists. Well, as long as I get flying cars with that as well. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you mention that. I was that promised flying uh, cars as a child. Well, we are uh, we are in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. Our, our branch is located in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. And north of us is Oshkosh, where, which is uh, this week going to be the uh, world's busiest airport because of the... Uh, the EAA, the Experimental Aircraft Association, and, and Mike, they're flying, they're flying flying cars there this week. So you may have you may have an opportunity yet. You may have an opportunity yet. Well, I'm, I'm just sort that, of hope, that, hoping for high speed rail at this point. So. <laughs> that would that would help, wouldn't it? That would help. I think that the the idea of uh, of uh, energy efficiency is going to keep coming into play more and more as well. So. You're, we're basically saying let's take a box, this house, let's let's uh, insulate it, let's make sure we have all of this uh, extremely uh, uh, energy efficient material in it, 
uh, let's make sure that uh, environmentally we have we're controlling the uh, carbon footprint of of what we're putting into this house uh, and then we're going ahead and we're punching holes in, into it because we want to make sure that we can bring the outdoors in so that's kind of the <laughs> the opposite end of it and and now we're also seeing that the improvements that the in technology for the manufacturer of glass, the manufacturer of, of of certain profiles for weather stripping, for example, and things like that, I think we're going to see continue to see improved energy efficiency in spite of the fact that there is much more daylight that's let in, and we know that impacts people um, psychologically in a positive fashion. So. There are a number of benefits that I think we're going to that we're going to see from some of these trends. I also see a a growing trend toward just long-term value and low maintenance in what I would call this higher tech product. Well, and I think we as an association and industry need to do a better job in in terms of promoting the benefits of daylighting and um, ventilation and because I think it's going to have a dramatic impact going forward. I, I see some of that actually happening uh, in Europe now, Mike, because we have, you know, we've got six factories in Europe, and uh, I see a lot of that happening. For example, uh, Germany u utilizes sunlighting extremely efficiently, uh, even in what they would call flats or condominiums. Uh, and people are are very conscious, uh, very conscious of the need for that additional daylighting and less artificial lighting in houses. And part of that, I think, is this is this idea of uh, uh, an improved psychological balance, if you will, oh, absolutely, uh, or a lack of this a lack of this SAD. Um, uh, issue that we're that we're often hearing about. So Hoppy and you yourself have been involved with WDMA for many years. So what do you feel the company gets out of being a WDMA member? Well, Mike, I think that I think that there are just some absolutely huge benefits that people either some people maybe don't maybe aren't even aware that they exist, uh, and other people maybe just don't take advantage of them. I think the the ability throughout the the different um, the activities that are offered through the WDMA being able being able to make sure that you have direct contact with all levels within a variety of organizations is astonishing. I mean, there are, are engineer to engineer direct contact, for example, or code engineer code direct contact with uh, uh, various organizations um, just through the technical conferences, let's say. Uh, being able to meet at the very highest levels, for example, with the executive conferences uh, or the legislative conferences that occur allows me to choose which people within my organization I want to get into specific activities in order to be able to make sure that I have direct contact with the people that are going to be utilizing my product and promoting my product into the marketplace with theirs. So from the from the engineering side, from the marketing side, from the management side, uh, out into the sales side, 
I mean, every box is ticked there. And I think that, that if you look at it, uh, you know, your codes and standards activities, as well as the Hallmark program, I mean, I think they're key for, for window and door fabricators. Uh, and, and probably the most important thing is through the organization, uh, whether you happen to be a, a, uh, a door and window fabricator or a supplier to that to those groups, you have direct input and direct involvement to make sure that your portion of the industry is clearly heard. And I think that uh, that as an individual company, you never get that opportunity except by doing this through a specific organization. I think WDMA does it better than anyone else. And one last question, Jeff. What's sure. something about Jeff Shalakis that would surprise people? I there, there are probably quite a few, some of which I could probably never say on tape. I can tell you that. Oh come on! But I, I Nobody's think that, listening. I think a lot of I I think that I don't think that most people are aware of the fact that I am an instrument-rated private pilot. So oh, wow. when I talk about Oshkosh, I speak with some reverence because I, if somebody tries to get me tomorrow, guess where I'm going to be? Um, yeah, I, I found that, that uh, being located here, especially uh, in the Midwest, I can get uh, around to visit my clients much more efficiently, get into meetings, get out, get back, in, and still be back at my organization um, where I'm needed uh, in a very timely fashion. I put less miles on the car, but more hours in the aircraft that way. That's great. Well, thanks so much, Jeff, for being on our very first episode of the podcast. You're very welcome, Mike, and thanks for having me. I very much appreciate the uh, chance to present uh, the company myself. And thanks to our listeners. Uh, so don't forget to send comments and suggestions uh, about the podcast to me again at mobrian at wdma.com. We want to know what you want to hear about on future episodes. So goodbye for now until the next episode of WDMA Open and Close. Mm -hmm.